Hello, Behind the Idea listeners. Mike Taylor here. For this episode, I talked with Gabriel Grego of Quintessential Capital Management and Nate Anderson of Hindenburg Research. They collaborated on an in-depth investigative dive on AFRIA, ticker symbol APHA. AFRIA is one of the more famous publicly traded cannabis companies. Our conversation had a lot of great details about the detective work they did. Work that took their team to Jamaica, Argentina, and Colombia in search of the company's properties and facilities. I was so eager to talk about the process that we didn't touch on the big picture. So let me give you the quick setup. According to its company bio, Afria produces and supplies medical cannabis. Its products include cannabis capsules, oral solutions, and concentrate syringes. Investors have gotten excited about the company amid the big marijuana legalization efforts of the past couple years. Afria has been very active announcing new joint ventures, acquisitions, and other deals. The stock has gone from around 72 cents a share in 2005 to $7.90 today, and the company has nearly a $2 billion market cap. But Gabriel and Nate think there's a problem. They believe, quote, Afria recently spent over $280 million Canadian on nearly worthless Latin American acquisitions that appear to have clear signs of insider self-dealing, end quote. They believe that Afria insiders are setting up or buying assets through shell companies they control, then turning around and selling those assets to Afria shareholders for multiples of the acquisition price. They tested this belief by combing through reams of corporate documents and traveling around the world to visit the locations of these acquired businesses. They were not impressed with what they found, and they think the company's balance sheet is full of bloated asset values and that retail investors who own Afria for the cannabis growth story are in for a world of hurt. The conversation that follows focuses on the information gathering process that Gabriel and Nate undertook. It's a great example of how deep an investor's due diligence can get, and a good reminder that investors have to be careful not to trust too deeply in surface appearances. Quick disclosure, Nate and Gabriel are short Afria, and Gabriel is presenting this idea at the Case Learning Conference on December 3rd, 2018. We recorded this podcast on Friday, November 30th. I have no positions in any companies discussed, and nothing on behind the idea should be taken as investment advice. Okay, let's get to the show. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm very excited to welcome to the show uh, Gabriel Grego of Quintessential Capital Management and Nate Anderson of Hindenburg Research. Quintessential focuses on discovering instances of corporate misconduct and investigating those opportunities from the short side. Gabriel does really fascinating proprietary investigative work. Hindenburg Research and Nate are both really active seeking alpha contributors. They're both lively writers with a 
interesting sense of humor. And so I'm excited to welcome both of you to the show. So welcome, Gabriel and Nate. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. Cool. So today we're talking about an article that you're collaborating on and that Gabriel is sharing at the Case Learning Conference. Quick shout out to Whitney Tilson. He's a friend of Seeking Alpha and he's the host of the Case Shorting Conference. Your idea is about AFRIA, ticker symbol APHA, which is a popular cannabis stock, especially among retail investors. Can you quickly explain what AFRIA says it does and how investors seem to perceive it? Sure. Um, I think this is a best question for Nate, since uh, I would like to acknowledge that the idea of targeting this company was his. So sure. please go ahead. So Afria, large uh, cannabis company based in Canada, their claim is that they are acquiring a wide number of valuable international assets. So we tested those claims, reviewed all the corporate documentation we could find relating to those deals. Gabriel did a tremendous amount of on-the-ground research to assess the value of those transactions. And we came away with the conclusion that the assets they've acquired, in particular the recent assets in Latin America, appear to be largely worthless. And we have seen signs of potential undisclosed related party dealings relating to those transactions. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. And I would just recap it as kind of, as Nate said, the company is acquiring assets and through a series of deals, it's not clear how valuable the assets were shortly before they were acquired. And so, and there, I think you can correct me if I'm mistaken about this, but it appears that the insider dealings is an important piece of that. Yeah, so we've identified two individuals that have a key role at both Afria and a company that's described as a sister company, Soul Global Investments, which is formerly named Sipping Biosciences. So Vic Neufeld is the chairman and CEO of Afria. He was the chairman of Sipping Biosciences during the time when these acquisitions were announced. And then Andy DeFrancesco has been a key deal partner of Afria since the beginning. He has described himself as the founding shareholder. He has participated in all of their bought deal financings, and he currently sits as the chairman of Scythian Biosciences. So those are the two individuals that we had seen that had turned up repeatedly in these deals. Okay. And then just to back up a little bit. So the cannabis space is really hot right now and investors are really excited about it. And so there's a potential for people to just sort of get over enthusiastic and maybe some of these prices to get a little bit inflated. What I'm really interested in here is the potential disconnect between the way the market is valuing some of these assets and what you all have found in your on the ground research. So. Gabriel, you went to Jamaica to check out some of the properties that the company says it has. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your trip to Jamaica, how you decided to go there, and then kind of what you found when you got there. Well, it wasn't only Jamaica. We've been to Jamaica, to Argentina, and to Colombia. So we went pretty much everywhere they made an acquisition concerned with that Latin American deal that they just did. We actually were there on the ground. Yeah, it was very interesting. We, I started with Jamaica. Jamaica is an interesting place to do a, a research because it's um, 
definitely what you would call a developing country. And I believe that the company probably was counting on the fact that being such a remote place, it's unlikely that somebody would go and take a look at whatever it is that they claim to be buying over there. And the, you know, we basically made a very thorough investigation that started with checking out the residential addresses of people who showed up as directors of one of the companies that they bought. And almost always we found some very curious situations. So in other words, certain of these residential addresses looked like dilapidated buildings, abandoned ones, some other ones. We visited the places and there were different people than the directors living there and Nobody ever heard of uh, anybody with the name of the director. And then, of course, we also visited the uh, registered office of one of the acquisitions that they did, as well as some other address that appears in a lease agreement and uh, another place that is supposed to be one of their warehouses. The most shocking discovery was the registered address, which is appears in the corporate filings. It was essentially uh, an abandoned, dilapidated buildings in, in very bad shape. We visited it during office hours and there was nobody inside. The gate was open, you know, was completely run down. It seemed as though it must have been several months or more since anybody stepped foot into that place. Um, it was actually quite scary to even enter the building. That's interesting. And just for context, how is Afria management or how is the market sort of perceiving these properties and it? Seems like they were more exciting, potentially well, they, uh, made up to be more exciting by the company. The we found some kind of like recurring pattern into the way these uh, acquisitions are made and spent. So the company is, is very good at being promotion and spinning what is almost a non-existent assets into a, an exciting story. So of course they're not precise, but the company says that they just acquired a cutting-edge science company with leading assets and a very prestigious management. That's the way this shows up in the press release when they announced the acquisition. In practice, they bought pretty much nothing because uh, the company at the time of acquisition had a registered office that was an empty, dilapidated building, by the way, foreclosed by a bank and sold to another buyer later on. They have an office lease somewhere else, which apparently was signed way after the M&A. So at the time of acquisition, there seemed to be no functioning office of this company. And the management team, um, we have a few directors. Some of them, we couldn't even find them. We're not even sure whether they exist or not. Certainly, there are some doubts about their residential addresses. Some of the others denied ever being involved with this company. Uh, finally, what does the company have? It's supposed to have a warehouse, which again, we visited. Um, but, uh, when we spoke to the landlord that operates the facility, he basically said that the, the unit number of this warehouse doesn't exist. And finally, the company has some cannabis agricultural licenses, uh, on a conditional basis. So these are not even definitive licenses, which the company, uh, tried to spin as though they are very important assets and they're going to make them a lot of money. But the truth is those licenses cost only as little as $500 to produce and are given pretty much to any Jamaican who applies as long as in good standing. So we never managed to understand how is it that they paid 150 million Canadian dollars essentially for a bunch of conditional licenses, which cannot be worth very much. And everything else is just smoke. So tell me what it's like to go around. You said that Jamaica is a developing country and a little bit more remote. And I thought I heard you say the word scary. So as you're going around, what's it like to come up to these properties and talk to the people there. How's that feel? What's that like? 
Well, let's put it in another way. It takes a lot of work in order to do this uh, with an acceptable level of danger. In other words, there has to be a lot of planning because, for example, if you're going to visit someplace, it's probably reckless to just take a cab and give him the address number and go visit without and hoping you know what you'll find. So we have to be very, very, very methodical and very careful and try to study the area before you even get foot into the country, try to understand what's around it, try to understand as much as possible from so-called open sources from the web and stuff. And then, you know, maybe you do a, a first trip without getting in, you try to understand what it is that you're dealing with and little by little, once you give a, a little bit of your assurance, then you, maybe you can dare a little bit more. Even so, there is always a, a little bit of danger, even if it's just from street crime. And Kingston is a is a nice city, but uh, until recently it had the world record for having the most murders in the world. So obviously, uh, you have to take precautions. Right, right. How did you acquire these skills of planning these trips and organizing this type of investigative work? That's not something that you know most people typically would know how to do. Well, I, I read a lot of books and uh, I watch a lot of movies and sometimes I get ideas here and there. And usually uh, you'll be surprised. You find a lot of know-how if you know where to find on the internet. So like what books and movies, like Tom Clancy books and Mission Impossible or what? <laughs> well, I, mean, the, I don't have a favorite ones, but uh, more seriously, is uh, it's mostly books. So you, there is a book for everything. Maybe you don't want to give away your, too much about your process, but that's fine. Um, that's really fascinating. So tell me a little bit, you mentioned some of these people that may or may not exist. And then I think I read in the report, Dr. Janice Simmons Fisher, you met someone who is supposed to be affiliated with Marigold, which I think is affiliated with or a subsidiary of Afria. How did that go? How did you meet her and what was her reaction when you asked her whether she was, you know, had any relationship with these companies? Well, obviously, I didn't go there as a hedge fund manager interested in insuring a company. So Dr. Fisher is a doctor. And, and so I visited her as a patient. Whoa. What did, you, what did you have? Did you have a cold or what? I had some hip pain. Hip pain. Okay. Okay. And by the way, I would like to say that Janice Fisher seemed to be like a great doctor and she was very helpful and friendly. So I hold no grudge against her. I think she's a great person, but she denied having ever been involved in Marigold. And we find that surprising since her signature is on the corporate documents as a director. Right. Okay. That is an interesting disconnect. Did she fix your hip? Actually, she prescribed some painkillers. Oh, nice. Good, good. Okay. <laughs> cannabis or nah, we can let that go. No, actually, you'd be surprised. Like, cannabis is uh, is decriminalized, but it's still illegal in Jamaica. So. Oh, okay. So doctors aren't going to prescribe it then, I guess. Not yet. Not yet. is working hard. To make <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the... So did you take any time afterward to just enjoy Jamaica? It's a beautiful place. Or was this all business and you just hopped right back? Would you believe me? The only time I saw the sea was on the plane landing and taking off. Oh, no. <laughs> You'll have to go back sometime after the idea plays out, maybe. Yeah, I had to go back. And, you know, like it's usually when you're in, we're in the middle of campaign or an investigation, time becomes of the ascent and uh, sure. we'll be on vacation for afterwards. So tell me more about 
Andy DeFrancesco, since he sort of seems to be this key character in the whole thing. What's your assessment of him? Especially first, let's start with, with kind of his his history and background. You mentioned Jamba Juice and American Apparel. Just what's your overall take on Andy? Yeah, sure. I mean, I so you can see from my Seeking Alpha articles, I've done a lot of work uh, researching uh, an individual named Barry Honig, who was recently charged or alleged to have uh, committed securities fraud by SEC prosecutors. And in that research, in particular in a company called Riot Blockchain, uh, I saw this DeFrancesco individual turn up and just explored, wanted to see what else he'd been up to. And that kind of led to the original report I had on uh, the Nuvera transaction. So that was a, a transaction Acria had done for $425 million for a company where I basically alleged the assets were essentially worthless and there were signs of insider dealing. Uh, and DeFrancesco had uh, boasted on his Instagram account, I believe, that he was the architect of that transaction. So that was interesting because I thought that was a pretty much worthless transaction with conflicts of interest. So um, started digging more into his background, the deals and the individuals he's associated with, and had found that the Canadian securities regulators had uh, uh, had uh, mentioned him and, and said that he... Uh, he, along with another broker who were banned, had little regard for the truth and that he'd been deceptive in some of his conduct, um, saw that he had other affiliations with individuals who had been alleged by the SEC to have committed securities fraud and pump and dumps. So you kind of just eventually build a profile of an individual and, and who they work with and how the regulators have responded to, to their activities uh, and the types of deals they turn up at. And for a short seller, when you find someone like that, that's just a beautiful thing. That's a that's an individual you want to learn everything about, I and mean, that's exactly what we did. So, and as it turned out, not only had he, you know, been the architect of the Vera transaction, according to him, but his name kept turning up in these latest acquisitions uh, by Afria through Latin America, and in particular, his name kept turning up on a bunch of shell entities that Afria and its related company kept acquiring tremendous amount of money. So that definitely piqued our interest and that kind of uh, helped lead to some of the subsequent investigation on him and the company, really. What do you think about that Instagram post? How do you explain that? That was really, really interesting and, and hard to believe. And uh, yeah, we discussed a lot, Nate and I, about this. It could be, uh, you know, probably people uh, start receiving a false sense of confidence that they do something for a long time undetected and unpunished. So some, what would you say? Yeah, my personal opinion is that that Instagram post was inadvisable, to say the least, to uh, basically boast about closing a transaction to buy a small pharmacy literally one week before a company you're associated with buys it for, I think, $37 million. It just seemed like a bad idea to make that Instagram post. I, I probably wouldn't have done that if I were in his shoes. Yeah, it's just an interesting little piece of the whole story. So this Argentina pharmacy bought for tens of millions of dollars in this transaction that Andy DeFrancesco said that he structured via social media. Let's talk a little bit about that rather large number for the pharmacy and then 
what it was like on the ground as you investigated what this property actually looks like? Sure. When the company was acquired, Scythian, which is the first company that acquired it, then its uh, stake was sold to Afria for $50 million. Scythian basically claimed that sales were as much as 11 million US dollars. And when it was sold to Afria, Afria justified the acquisition, basically saying that they are buying a prestigious pharmaceutical distribution and import company having prestigious uh, deals in, with many institutions in Argentina. So from reading that press release, you would guess that this company just bought the equivalent of Express Scripts or McKesson in Argentina, right? That, that's what it sounded like. We bought a pharmaceutical distribution and import company, and we paid $50 million for it. The uh, interesting thing is it, all evidence uh, points to the fact that this company is just a simple, simple retail single pharmacy. It's actually pretty small, even by standards of, say, a U.S. pharmacy. It's, it's literally a neighborhood shop. Slightly um, uh, larger than a bodega for those who yeah. are in New York, uh, but smaller than a conventional CVS or Rite Aid. It's a little exactly. farm. It's a little farm. They bought a, a single little neighborhood pharmacy in, in an average, average to low uh, neighborhood in Buenos Aires. We visited this pharmacy. We, we went shopping there, bought a few things. You know, it's kept clean and nice, and it's probably, I'm sure it's well run, but it's a single shop pharmacy. On top of it, we went to check out the address, the office address that shows up on the uh, on the corporate papers. And this too is located in a poor neighborhood in Buenos Aires uh, called uh, La Barracas, or it's right next to La Barracas. And it's, uh, it's actually one of those places where you want to watch out to go at night. Actually, tourists sometimes are advised to be careful. So we made sure they went during the day. And the office is in this really almost anonymous rundown building. There is no sign. There is no intercom. There is nothing. It took us actually a couple of visits to the area just to understand where the hell is the entrance. In the end, we found it and we, we managed to enter the building and, and we, we took a video. And all we saw is, uh, you know, some janitors cleaning the pace and one office with a single computer, a chair, and a few cardboard boxes, and not much more than that. Uh, what was happening there is unclear. We presume that after the acquisition, Afria may be investing a little bit of money into, you know, maybe making the offices look a little slightly more than what they were when they bought it. But we probably caught them at the very early stages of that. And by the time we visited, it really did not seem like a $50 million company. It seemed like the office of a pharmacy. That's all. Right. What was the reaction of the people working there when you walked in? Oh, we, we went there um, with an excuse. So they, again, we didn't show up telling them we're hedge fund managers coming to <laughs> collect evidence to um, take down the company that just bought them. Why not? Why do, do people, that lowers your chances of uh, getting more information? No, I mean, I, I'm a, believe it or not, I am a person that does not like confrontation. So I, my, my methods are, you know, smile to everybody and be nice and courteous. And usually you get a lot better. You get a lot more from people. Right. Interesting. And by the way, if you're doing this game in, in certain places in Latin America, you know, actually disclosing exactly what it, what it is you're after is probably not the safest idea. Right. So. You had an investigator go to Colombia. Speaking of of that, um, mm -hmm. is that it, were you concerned about going to Colombia personally? 
Well, of course, different countries have different levels of risk. In this case, fortunately, I guess for the person we sent, the very place that they chose to open their company is the safest place in Colombia. Literally, it's no problem at all because it's a coffee area. So apparently the cartels don't operate there very much, if at all. So, you know, there were not many problems in terms of safety. The fact is I prefer to operate in countries that I'm familiar with and I've never been to Colombia. And I found a company which is actually seemed to be very skilled in and, and very in touch with the reality on the ground. And so tested them. They gave very good results. And so we just decided to use that. Got it. So I'm interested a little bit in your collaboration here. So how did that take place? Nate, you published on this, on Afria, sort of taking a different angle back in March. How did the two of you sort of come together to work on this idea? Yeah, I actually met Gabriel at the last case conference, which is the Whitney Tilson's conference for just short selling ideas. And Gabriel had presented on a company called Folly Folly, which is now no longer trading and whose executives are under investigation criminally and whose stock went down, I believe, 60% in two days. It was an impressive presentation. And the style of due diligence that he employed was very on the ground, pictures, videos, talking to human sources. My style is different. I focus on basically trying to find every document or every digital trace of anything relating to a thesis uh, that I can and piecing it together from kind of a document-heavy perspective. So it was, his style was different, complementary. Just started talking. I think you had read one, one of mine. Yeah, I mean, that's how it came for me. I actually met him before I saw him in person. I was reading his stuff on Seeking Alpha. And I was reading about uh, Riot Blockchain. Somebody, I don't remember who, sent me an email with 10 or 12 companies exactly one year ago that had uh, essentially something to do with blockchain technology. They changed the name into blockchain or something. And somebody said, you should take a look. I'm sure a lot of this may be frauds. And so I made a screening. And the one that I liked the most of the list was this Riot blockchain. So I went to see whether somebody wrote something about it. And the more I read about it, the more I loved it. And then at some point, I, re- I came across... Uh, Nathan's blog on Riot, and I saw that pretty much already, as far as I was, as I was concerned, that the thesis was proven. Uh, he already found out 90% of the information that I thought you know I could be looking for, even though the stock price, for some crazy reason, didn't collapse yet. Watching. Uh, it was a crazy time. Yeah, it was. Uh, so uh, I said, okay, this guy is really good. <laughs> and then I came across uh, Nate, as I said, at the conference, and when we met each other, you know, we this, you know what, the next time we come to across into something, it might be nice to make a collaboration since the methods we use are complementary to a very large extent. Yeah, so I and I had done the work on Nuvera and that Afria transaction initially and saw that they were basically doing a new round of transactions and they looked to have very similar red flags from the last set of transactions. I built up a pretty well-tested thesis at the time that I thought was essentially ready for publication but i saw what gabriel had done what he was capable of and i was like all right let's see if we can team up and take this to the next level and i i think that's what's happened here wow so you met online basically first or like gabriel met nate through his work and then you met up at the conference and then the two 
the two of you sort of discovered a mutual affinity or complementary approaches. And then Nate, you thought that this would be a good fit for Gabriel's style. Is that right? I figured we'd give it a, we'd give it a whirl and see if, uh-huh. if we could, um, you know, apply his style and, and, and take what I had to, you know, a better report and a more well-vetted product ultimately. Yeah. Nate, why do you think that the market didn't, or do you think the market reacted appropriately to your initial coverage? Or do you, do you think that that original information still hasn't been priced in where we stand today? Well, to be fair, I always think the market underreacts to everything I do, but that's just <laughs> sure. like that's just the market. So I guess yes, but I understand how the market perceived that the company had moved on, had changed, and that it kind of you know bought the justification that these were very valuable international assets they were acquiring. Uh, so after that report, the company. You know, following that scandal, had instituted some governance reforms and put in some compliance personnel. Basically, you know, promised that going forward there would be more disclosure and these investments would be more clear. So uh, I think they had done a good job of of kind of changing the story and kind of moving forward. And then in the whole cannabis rush and all the hullabaloo around the space, you know, the stock eventually just took right back off. And I think it hit new highs or close to new highs around September. So, you know, but after that report, the stock traded down about 20, 30% in the following weeks. So it was a meaningful reaction, but, but no, ultimately I don't think the market fully recognized the, uh, what I believe to be the valuelessness of the Nivera transaction. And certainly I don't think the market has recognized what's happened with these Latin American transactions. So, what would each of you like listeners to take away about Afria from this conversation? What do you think is the key sort of finding or conclusion? Well, I mean, uh, the conclusion is very clear. The title of the presentation that uh, that I gave to uh, the case conference is "The Black Hole," and by that, I am actually a little. fan of physics, so a black hole is an object which is so massive that sucks everything in and not even light can escape. And I think this company is doing the same with shareholders' money. In other words, the insiders seem to have a very strong grip on the company, and they seem to be bent on leveraging on all the hype that's happening in the cannabis to essentially do whatever they can to enrich themselves. And so the takeaway is it's very hard to uh, hold money invested into this company. We believe we made such an overwhelmingly strong case that it's very hard to dispute these findings. It's not one or two or three pieces of evidence. This is a large puzzle of dozens and dozens of evidence, some of which are what we like to call smoking guns, and they all point to the same conclusion. And any reasonable reader, if he manages to go through and to overcome wishful thinking or denial, cannot avoid, but reaching the same conclusion that we did. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the takeaway I'd say for me to add, well put, and I would add that if you're an executive of a public company, you obviously have a responsibility to your shareholders to try and take the capital they've placed in your company 
and apply it to its best use. And that explicitly doesn't mean enriching yourself at your own shareholders' expense. And I think that's what appears to be happening here. So I just think these executives and associated deal partners have absolutely failed at their responsibility to their shareholders. Awesome. And in terms of we're really focused on the investment process and the research process. So I also want to sort of pivot that same question. What would you ask people to take away from your experience going through this research? How can they apply some of this methodological uh, innovation that you've undertaken to their own thought processes? Well, what can investors take? Yeah. I think the biggest enemies of any investor, especially retail investors, is their own greed and fear to some extent. And the the old story that what looks too good to be true usually is not true. It's, it's, it was true for blockchain and it's probably true for most of cannabis investments now. People love to get rich quick and easy and that's usually not possible. So the first takeaway is anytime you're in the industry with this kind of incredible hype and no, don't tell me that it's something that you don't understand with hindsight. If uh, for companies that are, have valuation of over a hundred times sales, or, and have virtually no sales and no profit, and in a sector where there is so much uncertainty, yes, overvaluation is sometimes clear even without having the benefit of hindsight, number one. Number two, so th this kind of situation tend to attract dishonest people and fraudsters and people that want to take advantage of shareholders and part them with their money. So number one, avoid the sectors. Number two, if you can't resist the urge, do a triple, triple uh, deep due diligence. But the problem is, you cannot expect the average retail investor to go through what we just went through for the last four months. I would say that both from what we call the field due diligence, that maybe is more my specialty, or the kind of in-depth open sources, but very, very hidden open sources due diligence that uh, Nate is an expert in, they are probably off the reach of the overwhelming majority of retail investors. So in other words, you will not be able to spot any of this allegedly accounting scheme companies by trying to replicate this kind of work unless you, you, know, you can dedicate your whole career to it. So the, the idea is, yeah, avoid those, uh, those sectors full with hype because you're not going to be able to, to tell the good companies from the bad ones and you're likely to, to get hurt very much. Finally, and this is another example, it, it doesn't apply for a free, but it applied to a lot of other frauds that I saw in the past. <clears throat> um, if a free is indeed a fraud, and we're not using that word, of course. But basically, it's uh, having a close look at the auditors. Now, the auditors of a free are actually pretty good auditors, so this example doesn't apply. But usually, all the other problematic companies that I saw had uh, unknown auditors. And to check very closely um, cash flow discrepancies, discrepancies between cash flows and earnings, excessive investments, the use of buzzwords and management, which is very promotional, this is the best that retail investors can do to avoid investing in one of these things. Because again, if a company manages to survive being an accounting scheme and arrive at $4 billion of market cap, it means it's covering its tracks very well. And most people are not going to be able to, uh, to find out about it alone. So it's just better to avoid the, the sector altogether and go somewhere safer. From an investigative standpoint, I would say that I think we're in a very interesting time for deep dive investigative work because 
everything's digital or becoming digital and pretty close to digitally accessible from a document perspective. So whereas 20 years ago, if you wanted to pull up the corporate records in Wyoming, you have to have someone physically there, open a desk drawer, pull out the document. You know, that's a, available now online. Uh, so I think people really underappreciate the accessibility of a tremendous amount of global information. You know, I can pull up corporate documents in just about every country in the world. I can pull up building permitting information in you know, Louisiana or most countries in the world. I can pull up corporate documents in Lesotho. Lesotho. I'm not even pronouncing the country correctly, probably, but I can pull up the corporate documents from that country because all this stuff is actually available. But the trick is to be incredibly fluent with what kind of records could exist on any local, state, countrywide level. Be able to pull records from any agency, you know, federal government of multiple different jurisdictions, and just knowing what kind of tools are actually in your arsenal. Because a lot of people rely on the SEC filings only, or the press releases, or basic kind of media reporting. And in doing so, you limit yourself almost always to just the things that the company, its executives, or its sponsors are saying, whether it's bankers, deal partners, PR people. And when you do that, um, you can really miss the real story that's going on. So uh, just having familiarity with where the stuff is and being able to pull it, I think, is a huge, huge edge. And certainly Gabriel's ability to physically go to these places that might be considered by normal people to be incredibly dangerous and totally unadvisable, that is an edge, right? Like there's a lot of smart people in the finance industry, but you don't see a lot of Harvard MBAs lurking around the slums of Jamaica trying to figure out where the property for a subsidiary might be located and what that looks like. So the ability and willingness to go that extra step and turn over that extra rock is a huge edge, in my opinion. Thanks, guys. I, uh, I think we can end it there. That's good. This is a really interesting conversation. So thank you for joining. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for listening to this Behind the Idea. We have another interview coming up shortly with a case conference presenter, as well as our recap episodes. Stay tuned. You can subscribe to Behind the Idea on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review or email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. We love hearing from you and works improve based on your suggestions and This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Behind the Idea.